an unexpected thing happened on the way to the moon. For those old enough to remember, most of us know exactly where we were on July 20th, 1969. I was a 12-year-old at Camp Kennebec, a Jewish boys' camp in the north woods of Maine. All the campers and counselors packed into the mess hall glued to a small, staticky, black and white TV, holding our collective breath, witnessing Apollo 11's successful moon landing, hearing astronaut Neil Armstrong report, Houston, tranquility base here, the Eagle has landed. Then some hours later, Armstrong stepped out of the lunar module down the ladder, the first human being to set foot on the moon, putting that singular achievement in perspective. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. While Armstrong and fellow astronaut Buzz Aldrin were going about the work of planting an American flag and collecting rock samples, unsung hero, Commander Mike Collins, was orbiting 60 miles above the moon. His job, as we know he successfully accomplished, to return to Earth with his fellow astronauts. Collins, alone in his module, described being awestruck by the magnificent spectacle of seeing the moon up close. The sun, he said, was coming around it, cascading and making a golden halo. As impressive as the view was of this alien moon seen up close, it was nothing compared to the sight of the Earth. The Earth, he continued, was the main show. The Earth was it. It's tiny, it's beautiful, it's home, and it's fragile. Just six months earlier, astronaut William Anders, part of NASA's Apollo 8 mission, the first to orbit the moon, said, we came to explore the moon and what we discovered was the Earth. For decades since these first space pioneers, astronauts have shared a common reaction of viewing the Earth from outer space. They speak of being awestruck, overwhelmed by the beauty, transcending a sense of separation buoyed by a certain unity, interconnectedness, and oneness, and at the same time, feeling vulnerable, looking at this fragile blue-green oasis of a ball hanging in the black void of star-studded infinity. Space philosopher Frank White coined the term for this phenomenon, the overview effect. For these astronauts, seeing our home from afar brought them closer to it, activating their tuning fork of human empathy, vibrating in resonance with all of creation back on Earth. Tonight, it's with our feet on the ground that I'd like us to explore the human capacity for empathy by looking through three lenses. The lens of our Jewish story, the lens of art, and the lens of bearing witness. What makes the, human, the Hebrew Bible, our timeless sacred text, 
is not a journalistic accounting of historical events. Rather, it's about creative narratives that define the values we cherish as Jews. Our core narrative is grounded in empathy. There is no greater focus in Torah than how we treat the stranger, the resident alien, the orphan, the widow, the most vulnerable in our midst. Have a listen. You shall not wrong the stranger or oppressor, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the soul of the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The stranger that resides with you shall be to you as one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You must befriend the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not hate an Egyptian, for you were a stranger in his land. This, this is the trope that echoes across the generations of our people. For we, each of us, were strangers in the land of Egypt. The biblical motivation for compassionate and loving behavior towards the stranger cuts against the grain of what's often taken to be our nature. In each biblical citation, the reason for our benevolent behavior is grounded in the memory that we were slaves in Egypt. This memory would seem more likely to reinforce vengeance than compassion and love. If, after all, someone has badly treated us, enslaved our people for centuries, acts of kindness don't naturally flow. Yet Torah is nothing if not counterintuitive and countercultural. Instead of hatred towards our enemies, Judaism channels empathy. Imagining, imagining what it was like for our ancestors to be oppressed and persecuted, Torah is challenging us to consider if it was hurtful to the ancient Israelites, how can we, at best, stand idly by, at worst, to inflict this on anyone else? Our biblical narrative is meant to cultivate moral memory, to activate empathy. Don't misunderstand the repeated command to treat the stranger with kindness. This is not about an act of altruism. It has everything to do with the self-interest of the Jewish people because it's connected to the survival of all humanity. The spade work that's required to live in respectful coexistence with one another is not idealistic or pie in the sky. If we can put a man on the moon, surely we can do the hard work necessary for our collective survival. Although our capacity for empathy is in our evolutionary bones and is central to our biblical narrative, the word itself was only coined 150 years ago to address the question of why art moves us. The 19th century German philosopher Theodore Lips theorized that the viewer of a piece of art projects him or herself into the piece of art. Drawn from Greek, it was given the English name 
empathy, literally, to feel into. It's quite a remarkable idea that we, the reader, the viewer, the listener, project ourselves into art, whether a painting, photograph, a play, a poem, liturgy, music, dance, sculpture, or any other medium. Our response to art channels values and memories that define who we are. In this way, by our engagement in it, art has the power to move us. Listen for a moment, if you would, from Somali refugee Warsan Shire's poem entitled, Home. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbors running faster than you, breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. You have to understand that nobody puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck feeding on newspaper unless the miles traveled mean something more than journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten. No one chooses refugee camps or strip searches. And no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore, unless home told you to quicken your legs, leave your clothes behind, crawl through the desert, wade through the oceans, drown, save, be hunger, beg, forget pride, your survival is more important. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, leave, run away from me now. I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. The first time I heard this poem was from my dear friend, Israeli poet and teacher, Dr. Rachel Tzviya Bach. Rachel was speaking at a symposium I attended almost three years ago on the New York City campus of my seminary, the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. Incidentally, sitting in the same classroom was fifth-year rabbinic student Emily Langowitz. Before we would formally meet for our interview in Los Angeles a few months later, Rabbi Langowitz, how perfect that we met over poetry. Rachel Back chose to share the poem for the reasons that I do tonight, to acknowledge the suffering of millions of refugees while acknowledging our own extraordinary privilege. Beyond that, perhaps the poem touched you, left an imprint on your heart, awakened empathy. Art moves us, and when it does, it can change us and influence how we act in the world. There's a reason why people in power are threatened by art 
in all forms because it has the potential to change us so that we resist and act for change. We've looked through the lens of our Jewish history, the lens of art as critical triggers for empathy, yet nothing can substitute for bearing witness, for the primary experience of encountering the other, the other in fellow human beings, and the other in nature. Most of us will never view the earth from outer space or experience the overview effect. Yet thankfully, with intent and open heart, we can experience as profound an encounter as the astronauts described right here on Earth. With this in mind, I'd like to share two short stories, one about our fellow human beings and one about nature. First, a few months after I heard Warsan Shire's poem, a small group of Temple Solel members and I visited the Kino Border Initiative, a binational humanitarian migrant center in Nogales, Mexico and Nogales, USA. We met Maya, pictured here with her daughter and granddaughter, three generations in one family who fled their home in Guatemala to save their lives. We listened to the story of their harrowing three-month journey, making it across the U.S. border to seek asylum, then being deported to Mexico. Thanks to the care of the Kino Border Initiative, they were provided temporary shelter, food, clothing, and love, their dignity momentarily restored. I heard three voices in my ear at once. The Spanish words from the Guatemalan mother and grandmother, the English translator, and the words of Warsan Shire's poem. I felt our common humanity as we looked into one another's eyes and exchanged the light of the divine. Each voice and each gaze left an imprint on my heart. And now about nature. As many of you may remember, last January, I set out on my sabbatical and headed for the Redwoods in Northern California. I had breezed through the Redwoods a few times in my life, enough to know I wanted to return and not be hurried. I wanted to spend time with these majestic ancient trees. I longed to be in physical proportion to these towering giants, not because I wanted to feel small in self-esteem or self-worth, but rather because I wanted to be humbled before these extraordinary living beings, to be reminded that human beings are not the center of the universe, not the center of Earth, and surely not the center of the seven-mile loop trail I chose to hike. In the course of the hike, during a rare break between raindrops, themselves a gift, I saw only three other people. I was alone and not lonely at all. I felt at home. As I was walking slowly by this particular redwood, I felt a gentle gesture of the breeze invite me to stop and spend time with a new friend, 
one I had known all my life. How wonderful it is to be in the frame of mind to have no particular agenda, no destination other than getting back to the car before dark. I knew I was exactly where I needed to be with this tree. Two strangers yet inextricably bound. The tree providing my oxygen, my outbreath playing its part in sustaining the tree. And of course, the tree was not alone. It was part of an old growth grove, a community of trees whose roots extend over 100 feet from their base, interconnecting with the roots of other redwoods collectively, strengthening one another far more than the strength of any one tree. Moved beyond words, I sat in silent prayer and gave thanks for the privilege of bearing witness to this magnificent manifestation of creation. The tree, somehow sensing a kindred spirit, offered me a seat, nothing less than a throne, a gift of royalty from this regal redwood. In all my smallness, I understood the significance of my role as a representative of humanity. This was not a throne for me to get carried away with myself, rather a reminder of the responsibilities that come from being custodians of this glorious creation. I lingered a bit longer to take in my friend's gnarled, exquisite design, beautiful battle scars of, resist of resilience. But strangers, a mere 30 minutes ago, I kissed my fellow companion goodbye and continued on the trail with a soft imprint left on the tenderness of my soul. To be feeling caring human beings must be cultivated. That's the mission of all faith communities. It's surely why Temple Solel exists. We build community, purpose, and self-worth by cultivating empathy. We're here to feel the suffering of others and act to lessen it. We're here to experience awe and act to preserve it. It sounds simple enough, yet it's no less countercultural today than it was for our biblical ancestors. Human survival and being responsible stewards of the earth is far more dependent on empathy and collaboration than the more dominant societal paradigm of competition and winner takes all. That brings us back to Mike Collins and the other astronauts who experienced the overview effect when they returned their gaze back to Earth. When we see the Earth from afar as the astronauts did, even in a photograph like this one, human hubris is replaced by humility. Just like the astronauts, we're struck by our place in the universe, our place as human beings coexisting and interconnected with all of creation. May this new year of 5780 be one where we cultivate empathy that clarifies our values and priorities 
and influences actions for goodness, bringing healing, care, and kindness to all of life on this precious, fragile, blue-green oasis of a ball, planet Earth, our home.